Hi, folks. One more thing before we get started. We know that there are about 7.3 billion podcasts out now vying for your attention. 7.4 billion. I just checked. It's been updated. Yeah. And we want to say thanks so much for spending some of your valuable time with us. That's right. Thank you. And if you've been informed or entertained by the things you've heard this year on the Dinner Party Download, we would love it if you could help keep the party going strong with a year-end gift. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org support and make a tax-deductible gift today. We'd love to have your support in whatever amount you're able. It helps us make the show that you download into your ears every week. Here, here. Literally. And now, without further ado, welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So one day Neruda, the poet, is sitting somewhere on a void. And Luke Skywalker is, like, walking by. And Luke Skywalker says, hey. And the poet says, metaphors be with you. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor Gael Garcia Bernal, which manages to reference two movies coming out this week, Star Wars Rogue One and Neruda, about the great poet. Amazing. Mm. Gael stars in the latter, and he'll tell us about it this hour. Plus, director Barry Jenkins stops by to discuss his acclaimed film, Moonlight. Also coming up, writer Wit and Wag Catlin Moran is here with Etiquette Tips. Oh, yes. Musician Lucy Dacus gives us a playlist. And FWIW, we learn the history of the text message. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Possible Russian attacks to influence the election. Yahoo says the data was stolen from more than one billion customer accounts. Welcome to the announcement of the 74th annual Golden Globe Award nominations. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Sabri Beneshore. He is a reporter for Marketplace. Sabri... What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? There are four five-pound notes in the United Kingdom that are actually worth 50,000 pounds. Oh, no. This sounds like an SAT question or an LSAT (laughs) riddle. Which one of them has a frog for a pet? (laughs) What's going on? Are they made of actual sterling or something? No. A famous micro-artist by the name of Graham Short Mm. has put four tiny, tiny portraits, microscopic portraits of Jane Austen on four five-pound notes. And because he's a big deal, apparently, haha, the irony. Uh, <laughs> big deal. Big Got deal, micro-artist. Get it. The, he says they could be worth as much as 50,000 pounds. To be a famous micro-artist, is that a competitive field? <laughs> <laughs> are there a lot of micro-artists? I mean, he's pretty much yeah. seems like if you are a micro-artist, you're probably... He's yeah. apparently engraved letters onto the sharp edge of a razor blade. Oh, oh my so, gosh. I mean, even if he's only the only one... Yeah. I mean, he's pretty good. But why Jane Austen? What's the... It's the 200th anniversary of her death uh, uh, next year. So they're, mm, so they're yeah. celebrating. This is the most British headline I've ever heard. By yeah. A, a tiny Jane Austen. <laughs> this is the definition of twee. It's like <laughs> Monty Python. Also, how are you supposed to know if one of these bills has come into your possession? Yes. What are you supposed to do? Like, go over every freaking five-pound note that comes into your possession with a magnifying glass? <laughs> yeah, this sounds like this is going to enhance British eccentricity by, like, 50%. <laughs> and destroy their eyesight, apparently. Yeah. They're just squinting all the time. <laughs> uh, Sabri Benishu, Thank you so much for this extremely small talk. You are welcome. And now, time for Big Cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's like history is a slushy sidewalk, except the slush is a frozen margarita. Hmm. Like it? You fall down, 
Mouth open, fall down again. Let's do it. Uh, first, the history part. Around this time, back in 1992, a momentous message was sent. A momentous, very short message. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. OMG. Are you sick of cell phone abbreviations like OMG? You can blame them on Friedheim Hillebrand. The year was 1984, long before most people owned or cared about cell phones. But Hillebrand and other telecom engineers were already working on a way to let cell users not only make calls, but also send each other text messages. The problem? Data bandwidth back then was in short supply. So messages would have to be short enough not to use much data, but long enough to actually convey a useful amount of information. What should the maximum length be? One night, Hillebrand sat down and typed out a bunch of random sentences. All of them, he found, contained 160 characters or less. So did the typical message on a standard postcard. Eight years later, on December 3, 1992, the first text ever was sent via SMS, the short message service Hillebrand helped create. Maximum message length? 160 characters. Hillebrand didn't send that first text. A 22-year-old engineer did the honors, typing the message out on a computer and sending it to the phone of Richard Jarvis, an executive at the company Vodafone. The message read, Merry Christmas. Jarvis, by the way, couldn't respond. His then-cutting-edge cell phone had no way of inputting text. No one knew if text messages would ever catch on with the public, but we all know they did, especially as other messaging services allowed longer character counts. This year, users have sent 8.3 trillion texts. BTW, that's about 270,000 per second. That was the history. Now for the drink to go with it. On the line is Typhoon Babayit. He is bartender at Shaker's Cocktail Bar that is in Bonn, Germany, where Friedheim Hillebrand decided upon the maximum length of an SMS text. Typhoon, what drink did that story inspire? Yeah, as you know, Mr. Hillebrand is from Bonn, so we named it like him. It's called Der Hillebrand. Of course. Uh, by the way, Mr. Hillebrand, thank you for the good job. <laughs> uh, Do you text a lot? Uh, yeah. If, if I had not to work uh, seven days a week, then I have time to text a little bit. Oh, man, they're working you hard if you don't have time to text. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is in this drink? Um, the ingredients are vodka, fresh lime juice, and Sprite or 7-Up. Why those ingredients? Um, I made this drink for me at first, years ago, but I had no name for this. And five years ago, two or, I don't know, three guys were sitting in front of me, and they're asking me for a special drink, which is not uh, on the menu. So uh, I served them this drink, and they were talking about the story of Hillebrand, so we named it like him. They just happen to be, these guys just happen to be hanging out at the bar talking about Friedheim Hillebrand? Yeah, I don't know why, because uh, they had uh, cell phones uh, and talked about short messages and so they talked about him, and then I said, okay, it sounds good. So you named it after a local hero. Right. I, I also like, by the way, the fact that it's kind of, it's a simple... It's, it's simple, yeah. It's, it's short, and it's simple, like uh, the uh, SMS, yeah? Yeah, no garnish even, just bare bones. Uh, you, you can garnish it with uh, a zest of a lime or lemon, or 
as you know, the first uh, message was Merry Christmas, so you can take also uh, a maraschino cherry. I get, oh, yeah, so it's red, kind of like Santa Claus. Yeah, right. Also, that little uh, pop of color, maybe when the drink arrives, that'll distract you from whatever conversation you're having, like a text. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Typhoon Baba Yeats of Shaker's Cocktail Bar in Bonn, Germany. You will find that recipe and all our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And people, speaking of texting, we've got a new feature that lets you use text to give yourself a wonderful gift. Or, more likely, a terrible groan. That's true. Just text the word ICEBREAKER to 677-677, and we will text you one of the hundreds of jokes we've used to launch our show every week. Oh Feel free to deploy it to fill in awkward silences at your next dinner party. Yeah, and the really bad ones are good for creating awkward silences. Once again, text ICEBREAKER to 677-677. Text message rates may apply. Give it a whirl, see whose joke pops up. All right, we've made some small talk, sipped a cocktail. Let's kick up this party with some music. Please don't knock over any glasses. Please. And here to provide this is Virginia musician Lucy Dacus. She's had a pretty sweet 2016. Mm. Back in February, she put out her debut album, No Burden, on a local label. Then 20 national labels were so floored they came calling to re-release it. Matador Records won out, and the reissue is out now. Here's Lucy with some inviting tracks to bring together a family or a family of friends. Hey, this is Lucy Dacus, and I would like to throw a dinner party that doubles as a listening party. I hope that that's okay with you guys. Here is my soundtrack. The first song is Guts by Town to Get Down, Stay Down. I think the piano work is really nice. The song kind of pulls it back, like it feels sincere. Quit the count till we meet again. The lyrics are incredible. To me specifically, the line, I got the guts, I don't need my blood. I got the guts, I don't need my blood. So I'm adopted and my mom is adopted, the woman that raised me and that I call mom. The way she explains it to me is like, we really wanted you, and that's why we're a family. Like, we, we chose each other. I got the guts, I don't need my blood. That line in particular, it's just really gratifying to hear someone else express that. You don't have to worry about your blood ties if you have courage. I got the guts, I don't. What would definitely happen and almost always does happen whenever I have events is I check to see if anybody hasn't heard the song Real Love by Big Thief. Real love, real love, real love makes you lose. I'm just like, okay, let's everyone be quiet. Just like lay down in our living room and listen to this song together. it really hit me for the first time. We were driving. The sun was setting. We were driving into the sun. I mean, it was like one of the all-encompassing warmest moments of my life, being on a road trip. It was just kind of the perfect listening experience. Adrian Linker is the lead singer. Her voice is just, I mean, really emotive. Our guitarist Jacob said it reminds him of 
when his mom would sing him to sleep. Like, not even that her voice is the same as his mom's, it's just the feeling of being soothed. Looking up to her, watching her do There would definitely be a potluck element involved. I always feel like that is the most egalitarian way to throw a dinner party. So we've eaten everything. We're really full. Some people are leaving. The people who are maybe closer to you are sticking around. At that point, the music would kind of calm down. So I would probably pick If Children Were Wishes by Y Oak. If children were wishes, my mother spent hers on possible. song is about expectations building people up for disappointment, especially in family regards. I dropped out of college. That broke expectations and was met with negativity, but it was like, I have to do this in order for me to live a fulfilled life. You just have to follow that impulse. It's obviously turned out okay because now I have the best job ever. I just moved into a neighborhood that's really close to the river. I would probably want people to end up there sitting in the grass, maybe laying down. That would be a pretty epic ending to a party. I would never stay at a party where my song was being played, so I wouldn't play it, and then if someone else played it, I would just have to bolt. But if I had to, I'd probably pick the song Direct Address. The song was written in the wake of a show. I saw someone, and they were really listening to me. You know it's unfair that I'm here and you are there. I feel short in the exchange. I'll show you mine. You walk away. I'm wearing mine. Out on my sleeve. You're wearing yours or I can't see. But I'll remember your face for years to come. And I felt cared for by this stranger just by how intently they were connecting. Playing music for people. People opting in to hearing your thoughts. It's a responsibility that I take to heart and that I'm really grateful that I've been given. A dinner party soundtrack from Lucy Dacus. Her album No Burden is out now. All right. In a few minutes, Gael Garcia Bernal gets fed up with reality and we bask in Moonlight, the wonderful new movie with its filmmaker Barry Jenkins when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, actor Gael Garcia Bernal talks about fusing poetry and politics. And in a few minutes, UK writer Catlin Moran talks about turning from pop to politics. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's filmmaker Barry Jenkins. 
His low-budget debut, A Medicine for Melancholy, put him on critics' radars. But his latest, the meditative coming-of-age drama Moonlight, is an indie hit and a major Oscar contender. It's already up for five Golden Globe Awards. The film tells three separate stories about Chiron, a child born and raised in the projects outside Miami. We meet him first as a boy, then as a teenager, and finally as a 20-something. Each story unspools slowly, focusing on gorgeous imagery and small moments. Here's a clip in which teenage Chiron seeks refuge from bullies and from his mother, who's a cocaine addict. He winds up at the dinner table of his kind surrogate mom, played by Janelle Monae. What's wrong? Nothing. I'm good. No. I ain't seen good. And you ain't it. And stop putting your head down in my house. You know my rule. It's all love and all pride in this house. You feel me? I can't hear you. Do you feel me? Yeah. Okay. I feel you. Alright. Moonlight is based on a play by Terrell Alvin McCraney. When I met Jenkins, I asked if he remembered the first time he encountered it. I do, and and it's one of those things, it didn't happen right away. Terrell wrote it way back in 2003 when he was an undergrad at DePaul. We had mutual friends. Actually, kids Terrell had gone to high school with, Mm. and then these same kids I had gone to film school with in Tallahassee at Florida State. And so they sent the piece to me, um, and it was beautiful because Terrell and I are very much the same, but then very much different uh, in certain ways. We grew up blocks from one another, went to a few of the same schools, and, uh, and both our moms went through this struggle with addiction depicted by Naomi Harris in the film, and I could see myself in this character. And so I think of it like as a relay race. Terrell kind of passed it to me, and I kind of just took it the rest of the way. Did you have any anxiety about portraying like a coming-of-age story about a queer youth? Uh, because that's one of the differences between you and Terrell. He's gay, and you're no, not. No, part of it, because I, I never really uh, conceptualize it that intellectually, as, as though I'm making a coming-of-age story about a queer youth. It's like, no, I'm making a movie about a kid who's kind of like Terrell, kind of like me, in the neighborhood we both grew up in. Yeah. So I didn't allow any of that stuff to ever enter the equation. So you were saying that you and Terrell both had mothers who struggled with addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naomi Harris does a wonderful gives a wonderful performance playing Sharon's mother. She's amazing. Um, she said in interviews that at first she was reluctant to portray another crack-addicted black mother. Yeah, I mean, look, I was at first reluctant to to write the character. You know, I mean, I think you can still have this character, Sharon, and he could function, the movie could function in a certain way without that element of the story, you know? But to me, it wouldn't have been true to my life or Terrell's life. You know, he's a MacArthur genius. I'm a guy who works at the Telluride Film Festival and, and has had a deal at Focus Features. And yet yeah. both our moms went through the same struggle with crack cocaine. And so if, if, if I'm ashamed or afraid of putting that character in the world because of what the world thinks of that character and not because of the humanity in my relationship to that character, you know, that's a problem. And my thing is, you know, I love positive images, but I also love productive images. Mm. And I felt like, you know, having someone bring life uh, to the life that my mom lived would be productive, you know. And then the, the, the morality of it, you know, is, is up to the audience. Another wonderful performance in this movie comes from Trevante Rhodes. He plays uh, an, the adult Sharon, the one we see in the third and last chapter of the movie. And I read that at first you weren't sure he was right for the part of Sharon. Why? Well, my idea of, of the, the character wasn't as hyper If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about, as hyper-masculine yeah. um, exterior, exterior as Trevante Rhodes has. I mean, the guy's just, he's rocked up. Yeah. He's like, a, like yeah. a bodybuilder, you yeah. know? And my experience of him in the room was so jarring, the physicality, that it took me a second to get through and see the vulnerability 
And then I realized, oh, if an audience does this too, then we're on to something. Yeah. Because you see that character, first you realize he is who you think he is. Yeah. And then you go, oh, no, he is what I think he is. And then you see, oh, yes, but he's still that guy. He's yeah. still that kid, you know? It's, it's um, dare I say, masterstroke. You know, this is kind of yoked out character. Let the record show. He said it, <laughs> not me. He said it, not me. But, but uh, there's some sequences where you linger on his body. Mm-hmm. And in the critical reception of this movie, a lot has been talking mm-hmm. about how this movie is the movie for this year mm-hmm. and how black bodies have been thought about in mm. ways by the mainstream public that they haven't before, partially mm-hmm. because people are paying more attention to violence mm-hmm. perpetrated on them by the police, etc. Um, you know, there were, there were two parts of it. One was the not necessarily the black bodies, but the black skin was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this film, my approach to the skin was, again, to reflect my memory, my childhood, the beauty of this dark skin. You know, the way it shines, the way it catches the light, the way it reflects and mm-hmm. refracts uh, the light. So that was part of it. As far as the, the male body, you know, I, I would say the male body, not necessarily uh, black bodies. I don't think I was trying to make a political statement in that. But what I was trying to do was the third story is overtly sensual. You know, mm-hmm. I do think in in the thawing of this character and his actual person coming back to the surface, he's starting to see the male body or allow himself to see the male body in ways that he has forbid himself from seeing. And and my approach to it was, you know, again, I'm trying to preserve Terrell's voice. You know, Terrell looks at a male body differently than I do. And so this camera is going to look at the male body in the third story yeah. in a very sensual way. And I think it, it works with the consciousness uh, of the character again. And even though your intent wasn't political, casting Trevante certainly educates the viewer about the problem uh, people have with making assumptions based on how someone looks. No, uh, undoubtedly, and, and I'll say even I myself, in the process of making the film or in the process of casting Travante, had to be re-educated because as he walked in, I saw him, and I made a, a judgment, you know, mm-hmm. of how vulnerable he could be, mm-hmm. how sensitive he could be. But then I watched him, mm-hmm. and I went, oh, my goodness, what did I yeah. just do? And it's like, okay, the audience is going to do the same thing which is necessary for, for you to go on the journey with the character. So Yeah, and I think a different casting choice that would have been dulled. That, that effect. It, it, it would have dulled it. It would have been probably a, a different film. So another outstanding thing about this movie is that it's highly aestheticized. You, you saturate color, uh, the way the camera rests on Sharon, even the soundtrack is an active character. Were you ever worried that stylizing the film would maybe distract from the story? No, the, the way I saw it was because the story, like the actual story, the narrative, uh, is so so pared down, you know? Instead of trying to tell 80 beats in 100 minutes or yeah. 80 story developments in 100 minutes, we do like six, like two per chapter. It's just yeah. these very these very pivotal moments in this guy's life. So because of that, you know, aesthetically, you kind of, it creates, by creating space in the narrative, you create this room to have the aesthetic carry the voice, you know? This movie is not driven by the linearity of the plot. It's driven by the consciousness of the character. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, I think filmmaking as an art form is uniquely suited to have the craft, the aesthetics, the formalism yeah. actually communicate theme and carry the voice. And that was our approach uh, to the process. I read um, a review or just kind of reflections in Film Comment, which I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. which talked about how cinematic naturalism is mm-hmm. usually conflated with authenticity. Yes, Often when we see movies about middle to lower class family, we expect gritty realism. We, we, we respond to like, this is authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you, as even hearing you talk about it, that you decided to not go that route. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the earliest decisions we made. In the end, I did realize there were certain things we did stylize. 
uh, that were interesting, I'll say, or elevated. But then I look at that swimming scene, and I think because we're trying to create a scene that, that derives from consciousness, yeah. exactly. Th- this is a scene where a young Sharon, played by Alex Hibbert, is taught to swim by Juan, uh, a local tough guy who's starting to look out for him. Exactly, by Mahershala Ali as Juan. You know, you know, we get there, and there's this huge storm coming in. I got 90 minutes to shoot this scene. But now, aesthetically, I already know in this moment, you know, the lens is going to be half in the water, half out. Because little is half in the water, half out. Yeah. And the storm is coming in, and all I can rely on is aesthetically, craft-wise, how am I carrying little's consciousness right now? Oh, I've got a lens, half in, half out. I'm just going to work from that aesthetic. And we end up with this the sequence that, and it's weird for me to say this because I made it. I don't like to talk about my own stuff, but I think it's beautiful. What, what Ali, uh, Mahershala, and Alex share in that moment. And that comes from allowing ourselves the freedom to have yeah. the aesthetic carry the voice. Give me a hit. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not going to let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. See that right there? You're in the middle of the world, man. So while prepping for this interview, I was surprised to learn about some of the films you thought about making between your debut, Medicine for Melancholy, and Moonlight. One was this movie kind of like Die Hard about yeah. San Francisco. I wasn't actually working on that one. That was kind of like on a lark. Uh, Aaron Katz, who did uh, Quiet City, Land yeah. Ho, uh, he and I are good friends. And he, I love John McTiernan. He loves Rennie Harlan. People who see our movies would not assume that. And John McTiernan's the director of the movie Die Hard, for those who don't know. And so I was trying to write a movie that Aaron would direct, and it was called Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, about the Bay Bridge. It was, it was about, it's a gonna cop, be blown up. about a cop who can't afford to live in San Francisco. He lives in Oakland, and he's driving across the Bay Bridge, and it gets taken over. Yeah. And, and he has to save the bridge. So yeah. it's Bridge Over Troubled Water. <laughs> but, <That's>, <laughs> so pause right there. So, <laughs> they, they, but I will say, can you imagine the aesthetic of Moonlight applied to that well, story? That's, so that, that's where I'm going with this question. Um, the other, and this sounds a little more interesting, which is a movie kind of about Stevie Wonder and time travel yeah, yeah. with Solange Knowles mm-hmm. kind of on board. So in, a, in what ways is Moonlight not a Barry Jenkins movie? Or what haven't, who haven't we met yet? Oh, I'm, well, I mean, you definitely not met the, the John McTiernan and Barry Jenkins, <laughs> uh, that's for sure, or the, the Michel Gondry Barry Jenkins. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I, I have very wide-ranging taste, you know? It's interesting. People see this film and see Medicine for Melancholy. They think they're very different. Yeah. And I go, well, it's kind of the same editor, same DP, same director. We approached it the same way. It's mm-hmm. just the resources were different, you know, and the story was very different. So I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm asking the same question, you know. Uh, I went a long time between films. And theoretically, hopefully, I won't go as long between this film uh, and the next. And I'm very curious to see what I sparked as well. I'm working on the Colson Whitehead book right now, mm-hmm. Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought I would fall in love with that, but I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, you yeah. know, please let me have it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and the beauty of this process of talking to people like you and, and everyone seeing the film is that it's creating the opportunities you yeah. know, to, to find material like this and actually explore it. Barry Jenkins, his new movie is called Moonlight, and if you're a human and you like beautiful things, you should check it out. All right. Also, folks, sometimes these conversations are a little too wide-ranging to squeeze into one interview. And when that happens, we include the unaired bits on our podcast feed. This week, we posted some great bonus material from our chat with Anthony Bourdain. And soon, we will do the same with some great stuff from Barry. So sign up for our podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 
And now it's time for etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is a writer the BBC named one of the most influential women in Britain, Catelyn Moran. As a homeschooled, pop culture-obsessed 17-year-old, she landed a gig writing columns for The Times in the UK. Twenty-odd years later, she's racked up a ton of awards for her frank and funny columns, which tackle massively important phenomena like Brexit and Benedict Cumberbatch. It's a tough one. <laughs> she's also published three books, including the best-selling memoir slash meditation on modern feminism, How to Be a Woman. Her new book, Miranda Festo, collects her favorite recent columns. And Catelyn, welcome. Hello, my darlings. How are you? <laughs> oh, very <laughs> nice now that you've said that. That's right. Oh, well, because you're transatlantic, I'm going super, super British. I've basically gone Thanks. 100% Mary Poppins. Oh, that's great. We'll break out the tea in your honor. <laughs> so uh, the columns in this collection come from the time in your career when you expanded your beat from pop culture mainly to more serious topics, politics, wealth, inequality. What prompted that shift? Well, I think that's what you do when you grow up, don't you? But not many writers seem to follow that path. You either you start off as a political journalist and you stay a political journalist or you start off as a comedy writer and you stay a comedy writer mm. but that's not what happens in real life you know you start off being all kind of like oh I only really care about pop stars mm. and then you get into your 40s and you're like oh my god some kind of tragic apocalypse <laughs> is coming upon us I need to like clue up and start fighting this thing was there a moment where you realized that you, you kind of had to do that well yeah and the 2008 banking crash was the big one like kind of you were watching all the serious news shows and like you know the BBC has very serious news shows and they wheel people on you know chance of the Exchequer and uh, governors of the Bank of England and everyone was going, so what are we going to do now? And all these citizens of power and stuff just went, we don't know. And they all looked very, very scared. And at that point I was like, hang on, these guys are my age and they don't know. I've got a couple Mm. of ideas that actually might be more useful here. I reckon I'm going to learn a little bit more about human psychology and history and economics and just have a go at it myself. And some of your methods for improving the world are, are practical, like espousing publicly funded elections. And then others not so much, like your contention that the House of Commons be, quote, fully insulated, lined with pine, and turned into a sauna. So, yes. first off, do you want to explain your reasoning behind uh, the letter for those who haven't read the book? Well, without being a bro crusher, as I am a lady and you are, you are gentlemen, uh, a, a lot of what we see being problems in the world, you know, is what we would call toxic masculinity. You know, there's just a lot of guys in a room together. That very rarely works out well. Mm. Uh, particularly if you guys are like all kind of hyped up and pumped up and there's a lot of testosterone going on. Uh, but you put men in a sauna, they get to have a sweat, they get to relax. Uh. That's a better atmosphere to do business in. They kind of I mean, really, the, the suggestion that I really wanted to make was to suggest that everybody make sure that, you know, that they have sex before they start legislating. But I was like, that might be a bit too graphic. Let's just make it a sauna instead. But if you're in a sauna, you're seeing each other naked. How is that going to reduce aggression levels? Like, I feel like that could <laughs> To be... remind you of mortality. Like, oh, you need, okay. exactly, you need to be surrounded by naked people. Like, we're all going to be dead in 40 years' time. Let's try and leave the world yeah. in a better place than it was before. And particularly the older among us, it's like you begin to realise more and more, yep, we're on our way out. Oh, God, yeah. I, I look like a melting candle at the moment, kind of, you know, physically, that is it. It's all slowly dripping down to the ground. That's what it is. I am the candle. I'm burning myself at both ends. Oh, my God. That's hardly true. <laughs> uh, there is an underlying optimism. Maybe we can even sense it in kind of the joy with which you talk about these things. In a lot of your columns. Yes. This idea that collectively we can make the world a better place. How has your outlook shifted with these recent moves that we've seen towards nationalism and xenophobia in Europe and in the US? Well, these are tiny blips. I mean, once you've got a sense of kind of like how long history is and how many times we've been here before, you know, we've gone through these sort of you know, these phases of civilization going into a very decadent, excessive phase and then an autocrat coming along, you know, or a plutocrat 
cycles. These are cycles that happen over and over again. I mean, the main thing about optimism is, particularly if you come from a working class background, a very poor background as I do, and, you know, the majority of people do, in my country at least, Mm -hmm. you can't afford to be uh, pessimistic. If you really have looked over the abyss in your existence, then you have to be optimistic. I've always believed that if you started complaining about something three minutes ago, two minutes ago, you should have started doing something about it. Uh, And uh. that is the history of our species. You know, whenever the world has been great, it's because people got together and put lots of tiny ideas about how the world would be better into one big kind of blanket. uh, And, you know, we made the world a better place. But but surely, isn't, isn't that also how the world's gotten awful? Because lots of people yeah. got together and put their tiny ideas of how things they think <laughs> could make them better. Oh, totally. But at the moment, there's a huge thing kind of, you know, amongst optimists. It's kind of sort of depression apocalypse where everyone's like, no, this is it. It, re- it really is too screwed up now. We're going to give in. We're going to, we're going to cocoon. We, we, it's game mm. over. But when we get into 2017, we need to burst out of those doors and be like, no, nihilism is not acceptable. If we don't have any actual ideas or power for what we could do, the best thing we can do is to not give in to nihilism, not make sure that we're not spreading depressive news. There's a brilliant piece on Medium at the moment that's got 99 reasons why 2016 was actually fantastic. Mm. And they've mm. gone around the world collecting all these facts about, you know, of like environmental issues we've got and diseases that have been eradicated. You know, there's a lot of world out there. A lot of good things have been happening. Don't forget, though, that David Bowie died, and that pretty much trumps everything that you just said. Sorry. Uh, I am working on the theory, which someone posited on the internet, that uh, that yeah. Bowie was the stuff that yeah. held the universe together, and when he died, <laughs> that's why it's all gone so wrong. Yes. I think also in one of your columns, you talk about the idea that Bowie might still be alive. Well, I mean, he's the kind of cunning sod that would, wouldn't he? Like, if, if there was yeah. one last trick up his sleeve, it would uh. be immortality. If anybody could <laughs> never, never die and be made of impermeable stardust, yeah. it would be Bowie. So I like I, I'm, that. I'm working on that theory. It's keeping me going. Catlin Moran, I feel more optimistic already. Her latest book mm. is called Moranifesto, and she will be back in a minute to apply some of her unique worldview to your personal problems. That's right. Also coming up, actor Gael Garcia Bernal, star of a new movie about Pablo Neruda, learns poetry requires more than a sensitive mean and a moleskin notebook. To put it out there in the open, it requires a lot of guts, you know? All that and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, actor Gael Garcia Bernal on the multiple people inside poet Pablo Neruda. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And we'll hear a holiday song for surfers by the band Sandys. But first, we continue our chat with writer Catelyn Moran. That's right. She's a best-selling author, TV writer, and columnist for The Times in the UK. We just spoke with her about her new book, Moranifesto. And, Catelyn, we are now anointing you an etiquette expert. Our listeners submitted some questions to you. Uh, they want your advice. You seem like you're not shy about giving it. Are you ready? Are you ready for these questions? Oh, I love giving advice. I'm the oldest of eight children. I've spent my entire life giving advice to people who were walking away going, actually, I don't want to hear your opinions. So this is great. I've got a captive audience. Yeah. I'm so stoked. There's nowhere for people to go. That's right. No other choices in the media world. Yeah. Uh, here's something from Pandy in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Pandy writes, here's the situation. A tall, lanky guy who is new to yoga and new to my yoga class showed up late to his first class, totally disrupting things. Then he began to sing along to the lyrics of the teacher's new wave bluegrass music. During the same class, I almost grazed his forehead with my foot while doing the tripod pose. My question, should I have apologized in the moment or apologized after class 
or not apologized at all because he's a clueless singing jerk taking up loads of space in my class. <laughs> well, I'm triangulating mm. out of this because I'm seeing two big issues here. The first one is when did it become socially acceptable for new wave bluegrass <laughs> music to be played in yoga classes? Yes, I, I was thinking the same thing. That's something you need a certificate for. And how does he know the lyrics? Do they have lyrics in new wave bluegrass? I, I guess don't know. Do. I'm 41. I'll, I'll admit I don't know what new wave bluegrass music is, but it, it sounds like a new <laughs> thing and I'm probably not for it. But the big thing I'm hearing here is, I mean, you know, I have very particular tastes, but if I hear of a tall, lanky guy who's coming to yoga, but he's late to it, and then he has the sort of unselfconsciousness to sing along to new wave bluegrass music, yeah. he's scoring about a 9 out of 10 on hotness for me. <laughs> I think the real issue here is that this is your classic Hollywood meet cute. <laughs> right. This is, it, in a script, the lanky guy, he turns up late and sings along, that's the guy you're going to marry. Mm. So, Pandy, don't apologise to him, just simply say, I do. That is in your future. Nice. That's a scene that was missing from the movie La La Land, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing to add there, Pandy. So, our next question comes from Jenny in LA, and Jenny writes, I'm single. I receive more and more holiday cards from friends that are full of family photos. These are often so over the top, they're like magazine spreads. I feel like it's turned into a competition. Can I, the single person, participate somehow? Uh. Oh, well, first of all, Jenny, I'm so sorry to hear you're single. If you, if you go to your doctor, you can be cured of singleness with a single injection of man uh, if you pay the right fee. So that, that is something to look forward to oh, later. Oh, goodness. Um, it's covered uh, under health care, I think. <laughs> we get men all the time on the NHS here. It's fabulous over here. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, you've, what you've got to remember um, with these cards is that the reason that people uh, include lots of pictures of their children is it's a pictorial way of explaining why nothing else has happened in their lives that oh. year. Whereas you, as a single person, footloose, fancy, free with time on your hands and controlling your life and excess money, will have travelled around the world and gone up mountains and maybe stolen a boat. They will have sat at home just picking mashed potato off their legs. But what about the people who also send along a letter that actually also lists all the wonderful things they've done as a family? How can you counteract that? They're all lies. Okay, I'm good. a writer. I'm... <laughs> yeah, they're lies. Good to know. Yeah. People write things down. It's usually a lie. Yeah. There you go, Jenny. I'm not sure what the advice is. So should Jenny send a picture of herself stealing a boat and dancing uh, in Machu Picchu, etc.? Or I think go full Kanye, like the, the video to fame where it's like him in a bed with loads of other famous people. Just simply cut out your head and the heads of other famous people that oh, you like, like or admire it. and collage them onto a bed and mm. send it off with, yes, yes, this really happened. Sure. And we'll translate for the older folk in the audience as you're suggesting something like the cover of Sgt. Peppers. Yes, exactly. But with Kanye. Yes. Sorry. There you are. <laughs> Here's the last question. This is from E in Kittery Point, Maine. I love the name of that town. E says, Aww. when is comfort over fashion not okay? Never. Never. Huh? It's 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 comfort. always okay. It's always okay to have comfort over fashion. Really? I would attend a funeral no. in a onesie. I would attend a funeral in one of those Mm-mm. heated onesies that they keep your feet warm. Mm-mm. I would attend a funeral in a heated onesie, even if I were the priest doing the sermon. Wow. Clothes on. Nope. nope. Now now I see the source for your sauna of the House of Commons. (laughs) You just want people walking around in towels because it's more comfortable. Exactly. I think this is the beginning of the end of civilization is people showing up in onesies the funerals. Snuggling is our future. If we all had slightly more comfortable outfits and we weren't worried about our waistbands digging into our bellies or our Mm. bras being too tight, we would be much more reasonable people. But we wouldn't meet other people. We would because we'd all be lying on the floor really, really relaxed, just rolling around like babies and bumping into each (laughs) other and smiling at each other. It would be amazing. And the way that you dress does not say 
way and you know how you respect someone or, or what that social situation is the warm compassionate noble look in your eyes is what conveys respect uh-huh. and of course if you don't have warm compassionate noble eyes then maybe you do need to wear a suit and a top hat oh, what if you can't my. see someone's eyes because they're wearing a hoodie and their face is obscured by a 32 ounce like <laughs> uh, soda because they're being comfortable <laughs> then we need to invent it being necessary to cut an eye hole so that we can look in deep into people's souls right. and I think if you All lean right. across to someone with a pair of scissors and go sorry I'm going to cut a hole, a hole in your hood so I can look into your soul that would be fine alright we could all agree that the best fashion accessory is your eyes at all least right. and uh, yes. thank you so much Catlin Moran for telling our audience how to behave it was a joy my absolute pleasure boys thank you very much Catelyn Moran, she writes weekly columns for the Times in England, and she has a new book out called Moranifesto. Oh, yeah. Check it out. And, folks, if you want to have your most sloth-like fashion desires discussed and perhaps even championed... Not by me. Not by Brendan. Nonetheless, we want to hear about it. Email your etiquette dilemmas to us via dinnerpartydownload.org. And please be fully dressed while typing. Gael Garcia Bernal is one of the most respected actors and producers in the world. Critics loved him in films like Amoris Peros and The Motorcycle Diaries, and we talked to him last year about his starring role in the Amazon series Mozart in the Jungle. That performance earned him a Golden Globe. Gael's new film is the neo-noir, darkly comic period piece Neruda, Chile's entry for the Best Foreign Film Oscar. It details a few years in the life of the Nobel Prize-winning communist poet and politician Pablo Neruda, who in the late 40s went into hiding after the Communist Party was banned in Chile. Gael plays a jaded cop, maybe a little too convinced of his own genius, who is tasked with finding Neruda. When we spoke, I welcomed Gael like this. Gael, it is an honor to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. And happy to talk about Neruda and poetry, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get right into it. This, the movie does it drops you right into the middle of Neruda's life. It kind of expects us to know a little bit about his importance and the politics of the time. How much did you know about him before taking on this film? Well, I mean, growing up in Latin America, you're in high school, you enter the world of Neruda for like two months, you know? <laughs> they just t- and, For two um, solid months, seriously? They- yeah, I mean, because his work is so vast. I mean, he wrote about everything. He was uh, very prolific. And he was also a politician, uh, a great cook, a great collector. <laughs> he was a great cook? That's not mentioned in the movie. What is it? It's not mentioned, but it's implied because he's cooking a couple of times. Yeah, that's true. I did actually yeah. I noticed that. He's actually sort of uh, dictating poetry while he's chopping up a chicken or something. Exactly, a fish. But even so, we should say, as much as you know, you get all these details about Neruda into the film, this is not a realistic biopic, let's say. I mean, you know, the, it was like uh, like what Herzog says, you know, if you want reality, well, just look at a phone book <laughs> because that gives you like real information, you know. But uh, really, uh, I mean, what survives us is our work. And we approach Neruda through his work, through his Nerudian world that he built. Then you can really like get a sense of who this person was. And basically what a, what a poet kind of defends is the fact that you can live many lives within one life. Mm. So it's a film that gets inspired in the work of Neruda. It's a cinematic thriller. It's a neo-noir police chase. Yeah, it's yeah. What is that? It's true. Like as I was watching (laughs) it, it is. It's it's noir. It's kind of funny. There's almost slapstick elements of it at moments. There's (laughs) deep drama, which I guess is all kind of summed up in his work. Exactly. Which of those parts of Neruda is most attractive to you? Well, I mean, something that struck me strongly is just the. A poet has to 
there is something about the fact that you you're willing to show what you wrote to millions and millions of people to put it out there in the open it requires a lot of guts you know particularly when you're writing you know extremely political poetry at a time when that can get you in his case exile exactly i mean there's many comparisons that we can do with what's happening nowadays you know mm. he was a communist senator and he wrote poetry to incorporate the marginalized members of society into society yeah he was always writing about the working class exactly and this i mean most of the victories that we can talk about social victories nowadays were made by these people that started to incorporate art let's say into politics in many ways and that's something that while well, right now it's kind of not happening yeah i was going to ask you uh, you yourself have starred in or you've produced a number of movies about left wing politics you played che guevara twice you produced a biopic about cesar chavez you co-directed a series of shorts for amnesty international about central american migrants but it is true it does feel like art and media even in general doesn't seem to have as much impact on politics today as it maybe did in neruda's time so as a political artist yeah. to an extent are we are you just sisyphusian you're pushing this <laughs> stone up the hill uh, no i think i i mean that's that's another interesting question as well to ponder no because i don't think poetry has lost its power maybe its relevance in everyday discussion maybe but its power is not i mean it's like saying that music is no longer people don't react to music well i mean people react to poetry people react to music people react to all this this reflection processes we have as humans you know but obviously saying like uh, my film is political and my film is going to change the world you fail you know because <laughs> because it didn't. you can't define that what you can do is something that eventually might have that consequence eventually it might accompany a movement or a change that's going on or be a catalyst of something that's happening mm. but it cannot be by itself the thing that changes the world you know and to say that you're what you're doing is changing the world well you're really like come on you you <laughs> you know i don't know and, and there's people that say that actually but it, you know it cannot be like that it, it, it that's something that time and and uh, history shall absolve that. <laughs> By the way, I, w I should say this movie doesn't necessarily paint the most flattering possible picture of the political artist. Neruda here is definitely a hero, but he's also a philanderer. He craves attention, he endangers himself and others to get attention, and you actually play a character who criticizes him for that. So let me let me turn that critique back on you like how does one reconcile doing work with a social conscience when the nature of your job as an actor is kind of to say look at me look at me Well I mean th then then that is the end of narrative in a way No I mean that I mean by that I mean like well it always requires somebody I mean at the end of the day it is not the credit that's important it's actually the work I mean if you read any poet any poet whatsoever from Whitman to Neruda you might hear the voice of the poet but really what you're listening to is your own voice when you're reading whenever we see a film of a fantastic uh, director or a fantastic actor you know we're looking at the actor and we're at the same time looking at ourselves you know hmm. that's why also like films for example have so many awards you know and there's like an award for everything Oscars exactly but really at the end of the day if we think about the film that we love and everything we never think about how many Oscars it has you know <laughs> yeah. like i don't even know if clockwork orange won an oscar or not you know it's a film that survives at the end of the day picasso's guernica you look at it and you encounter the horror of guernica and the least thing you think about is picasso you know <laughs> if you look at machu picchu well it's a statement of humanity 
I'm going to ask you one of our two standard questions. You may recall these from the last time you were here. Um, ah, maybe I might contradict myself. That's possible. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, the question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. This could be about yourself or it could be a piece mm -hmm. of trivia about the world. Maybe something we oh, don't know okay. about Neruda. Okay. Assuming that maybe many people don't know about this. Okay. In Neruda, in the film, there is a moment of exile uh, when he went to France and he crossed the Andes in the south. Yeah, that's how he left and Chile, right? He, he went over the Andes. Exactly. And at the same time, a little bit after, not long after, through the same roads in a way. The same route yes, through the Andes? Exactly. Somebody crossed from Argentina to Chile, like the other way around. Okay. And that was Ernesto Guevara and Alberto Granado. Che Guevara. Uh, on their first journey in Latin America, yes. Like almost at the same time. Who you played, of course. Yes. <laughs> you can't escape Che Guevara <laughs> in your career. Exactly. Gael Garcia Bernal, his new film Neruda opens in select cities this weekend. Speaking of Che, Gael spoke to me about his thoughts on Cuba in the wake of Fidel Castro's death. You can hear that on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And by the way, on our latest podcast-only bonus episode, you can hear our thoughts on Cuba. That's right. Short version, amazing, because we just returned from a tour of Havana. So go check that out. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. And folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Thanks to our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, and intern Kathleen McGovern, Ben Tolliday engineered. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And since it's that time of year, we thought a holiday song might be appropriate. It's a brand new one written by Sandys, a band obsessed with all things surfing. This track is no different. It's called Surfy Christmas. Of course it is. Bon appétit. The golden dunes are washing morning light. The classy from a silent night Oh, spirit of the winter storms afar There is but one thing that we're praying for Send us Christmas, Christmas Neptune Lines of gold and oriental Offshore wind and water Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and please join us next week. I have come for your souls. Uh, we can talk when you lose the hoodie. That's just rude. Ma that's the Grim Reaper. Brendan. The slovenly Reaper. This is a professional setting. Well, are you kidding me right now?